Hi listeners, it's Masha Mokutonina, a producer on Masters of Scale. I spend a large part of my day carefully crafting emails, composing documents and endlessly responding to messages. Which is why I am such a big fan of Grammarly, the secure AI writing partner I use on a daily basis. Whether it's reaching out to high-profile guests or coordinating logistics with the production team, I use Grammarly to adjust my writing to different audiences while maintaining the brand voice of Masters of Scale. Grammarly helps spot redundancies and clean up sentences that are unnecessarily wordy, verbose, long-winded and repetitive. Like this one. Grammarly's AI prompts help guide my writing process, personalizing content based on context as well as making tone adjustments intuitively. It doesn't just help me generate more content, it helps me generate better content. Amazingly, Grammarly works seamlessly across my email, Slack, and over 500,000 apps and websites, so there is no cutting, pasting, or context switching needed. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster and hit their goals while keeping their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. I thought the hardest thing I would ever do in my life was start Airbnb. And I was certain of that. I came back from the holidays. It was January 2020. I thought my life was going down a certain road and I could predict it. We were a $30 billion company waiting to go public. And then all of a sudden, within eight weeks, we lost 80% of our business. You can learn a lot about people in a crisis. I think the person you learn the most about is yourself. The voice you just heard belongs to Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky, one of my favorite scale leaders. I'm Reid Hoffman, partner at Greylock, co-founder of LinkedIn, and host of Masters of Scale. Recently, Brian sat down with my colleague Bob Safian on stage at the Masters Scale Summit in San Francisco to talk about how great leaders respond during a crisis. In their conversation, they analyzed clips of Brian's previous appearances on Masters of Scale and talk about the first principles that carried Airbnb through its near death in the pandemic and how Brian has led Airbnb to its success today as a public company. It's a conversation that continues to be relevant to leaders of any kind even CEOs. Stay tuned for Bob Safian's conversation with Brian Chesky. We'll start the show in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I wrote down on a piece of paper, what are the strengths that we have and what are the clear glaring opportunities that we're missing? That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. Like many leaders, she spent her first months in her new position asking those big picture questions. Aparna had always been a data junkie, so that's where her interest went. The key thing on opportunities that kept glaring at me was in a world where marketing has moved so much closer to using big data and leveraging machine learning, we were far away from there. How do we scale our marketing engine from where it is today? She came up with a plan to refocus and called a town hall, but the response was not what she expected. We'll find out why later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, 
Focus on your team and your customers. Please welcome to the stage the CEO of Airbnb, Brian Chesky. Brian has been listened to more times than anyone on Masters of Scale through his different episodes. So what we're going to do is we're going to play a handful of clips, okay. and then we'll chat about them. All right. So are you ready? Yes, do it. Let's play the first clip. I went to a school called the Rhode Island School of Design. And when I was at RISD, I never aspired to be a CEO. Do you know why? Because no one at RISD seemed to become a CEO. It seemed like not an available option. I was doing medical design once. I had to design a children's ventilator. I had to sit in the shoes of the child. And so I had to like imagine being a child, get in like the operating table and like, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the patient or the person using your product. And if you're only doing A-B tests, like you're never designing with empathy. Wow, it's weird to listen to yourself in front of hundreds of people. <laughs> <laughs> so being a designer as a CEO is still pretty distinctive. Yeah. So. What does it mean to think like a designer when you're a leader? Well, I think it probably starts by defining what is design. I think we should start there. Because I think at the surface, design is how something looks. So designers design how things look. But I think at a deeper level, design is really how something fundamentally works. I think of design as just a way to assemble something to solve a problem. And so... To think like a designer, I think the first thing you need is probably curiosity. You know, because you're trying to design for people. And so to design for people, you have to understand them. You have to care about them. And also, you don't have to design for people. You have to understand the industry and the history and why are things the way they are. And so you have to think about first principles. And so once you're curious, then the next thing I think a designer has to do is be holistic in their thinking. So, you know, we tend to, as designers, like to be really holistic and see the entire system. And so part of being a designer, I think, is to take a thousand things in your head and to try to, like, organize them and then make all these trade-offs. Because the final thing you have to do is distill them to its essence, to whatever is most important. We would often call this simplicity. And so ideally, when you get to the end of that process... You were curious. Maybe you discovered something you could have never imagined. You weighed all these different outcomes, and you designed something that was really inevitable. And I think you can design not just objects. You can design not just clothing. You can design a company. You can design how people connect together. You can design communities. Almost anything can be designed. And to solve many of the hardest challenges today in society— I think we're going to need more designers at the table because you ever have a situation where there's like no good option? Sometimes a third option is the right option, which is something you haven't thought of yet. And that's where I think creativity and imagination come in. Second clip, it references you and your co-founder Joe Jebbia in the early days. We literally would knock on the doors of all of our hosts and we had their addresses. And we say, knock, knock, hello, hey, this is Brian, Joe, we're founders, we just want to meet you. It's a little creepy just to knock on the door unannounced. We need excuses to get in their home. So they came up with an offer that the host couldn't refuse. We'd send a professional photographer to your home and photograph your home. Of course, we didn't have any money and we couldn't employ photographers. So Joe and I, we'd show up at their door and they're like, wow, this company's pretty small. 
These home visits became Airbnb's secret weapon. It's how they learned what people loved. It's really hard to get even 10 people to love anything, but it's not hard if you spend a ton of time with them. So if I want to make something amazing, I just spend time with you. And I'm like, well, what if I did this? What if I did this? What if I did this? I love this story, this handcrafted experience, yeah. which is, by the way, one of the most compelling insights we've had on Master of Scale. We all want the leverage of scale, but you sometimes have to start with things that don't scale. That's something that you've said. I'm curious how much of that perspective was learned versus instinctive, and how do you keep handcrafted when the company gets much bigger? Totally. I think it's instinctive in all of us, don't you think? Like, I think it's instinctive in all of us that we want to think about another person. And I think it's really hard to think abstractly about millions of people. But when I came to Silicon Valley, it was all about hypergrowth and scale. And we had this instinct about trying to design for another person, but then people would say, but how would that scale? And so what ended up happening is you would end up editing your imagination. You'd be afraid to imagine something if you couldn't ever imagine scaling it. And so if you edit your imagination, it's like you take the stone, which is your idea, and you start carving it down, and pretty soon all you're left with is this tiny idea, this tiny stone. And we entered Y Combinator, and Paul Graham is the founder of Y Combinator. And the first day of Y Combinator, Paul Graham said something to us. He said, it's better to have 100 people love you than to have a million people that just sort of like you. Because a hundred people that love you will tell their friends about you, and then they'll tell their friends, they'll tell their friends, and they become your marketing. And the reason that's great is because it's a lot easier to design for a hundred people than a million people. How do you know what a million people want? It's pretty hard. But you could study one person. And so what we did was this exercise. Take a single traveler and design the perfect experience. And so if you go to the Airbnb app, we ask you like one through five stars, how was your check-in experience? But we did this exercise. We said, what if we made the check-in so great you added a six star? What would that check-in be? And you wouldn't just go in and the host wouldn't just open the door, but there'd be maybe a bottle of wine on the table and there'd be like some cheese and they'd learn about you a little bit. And that's a six star experience. And then you ask, well, what would a seven star experience be? Well, a seven-star experience, they would basically like send a limousine to the airport. You'd get in the car. There'd be champagne. you go to the house. They know you love surfing, so you have a surfboard in the kitchen. And, well, I don't know why it's in the kitchen, but you get the idea. And so then I asked, well, what would an eight-star experience be? An eight-star experience, you show up to the airport. There's a giant elephant. You get on the elephant. It's a parade in your honor, and you basically have this huge ceremony for you. So what's a nine-star experience? A nine-star experience is the Beatles check-in. You get to the airport, and 5,000 young women are cheering your name. And they're hyperventilating. And then you have a press conference on the front yard of your Airbnb. So what's a 10-star experience? Very simply, Elon Musk shows up, and he just takes you to space. The idea is that we're not going to design an eight-star, nine-star, 10-star experience. But if you can go through the mental exercise of taking a person designing the journey for them, exaggerating, maybe eight or nine stars not possible, maybe six or seven stars is. So now you've designed the perfect experience. Now you need to scale it. The process of scaling is now taking that experience, breaking it down to its component parts, and then that's just like system design. I don't want to say it's easy, but the point is to separate those two processes. And if you do that, you hopefully will eventually create something that people love. 
Now, Brian makes it sound like this is all hypothetical, <laughs> but we have an audio clip of you actually talking about a particular experience okay. that you handcrafted for someone. We put up these flyers anonymously saying, seeking a traveler will photograph your trip to San Francisco if you let us follow you. This guy, Ricardo, replied, what we learned was his trip was awful. We call him back. We say, Ricardo, we want to create the perfect trip to San Francisco for you. You fly him back. And we had the team storyboard the perfect experience for Airbnb. We had a driver pick him up the airport, and we took him to the perfect Airbnb. There were all these services. He went on these dinner parties. We got him the best seats at restaurants. We took him on this midnight mystery bike tour. Like 60 riders go on it. And nobody but the leader knows where they'll end up. And it's just like there was this crazy magical world. I see him at the end of the trip. I say, how was your trip? He says it was amazing. And then I walk away, yells at me, Brian, one more thing. And he starts like crying and he breaks down and says, thank you. This is the best trip I've ever had. This concept that you talk about of 11 star experience, like yeah. you tried it out, like you're trying to do it. You're yeah. not just talking about it. Yeah. And to be clear, we don't always get it right because you do face the realities of scale. There's like this old Pablo Picasso quote, I think he once said, the older you get, the stronger the wind gets, and it's always in your face. And it might as well be a comment about companies. The bigger you get, the stronger the wind gets, and it's always in your face. And I think the challenge with large companies is when you build a product, the first time you built it, you built it for someone else. Actually, when you start a company, you're usually building it for yourself. So it's a deeply personal thing. And now there's no employees or any no other stakeholders who are making it for another person. And then one day you wake up, if you are so successful, and you have a huge organization, and then you have employees to think about, and a board, and shareholders, and then one day you're in a company and you have meetings about meetings, and you're not really talking about the product. And I think it's really important, no matter how big a company gets, that you always go back to that small scale, that we're never maintaining something at the company. We're always going to the next version of it. And the next version always goes back to subscale. How do we create this perfect experience? Okay, that's the experience. Now we're going to scale that. And that's essentially what we try to do. It doesn't always work, but I think that's a way to continue to kind of keep your soul, keep your humanity, and do something that people really love. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. At my town hall with my team, I was able to sort of declare this new vision for us to become this modern marketing engine. I had a lot of skeptics who were like, we've seen this, done this, it's not going to work. We're back with the Parnasaran of Capital One Business. She's recalling a town hall where she put forth her data-driven vision for overhauling her team's marketing strategy. Moving from output-focused marketing to outcome-focused marketing. When you are outcome-focused, you're actually using the data to evaluate whether your strategies are effective or not, versus output focus is how many campaigns did I run and how many emails did I send, and so on and so forth. But not everyone was on board. Aparna realized that her presentation was premature. You're not ready to actually declare the vision because people didn't buy into your strategy. First of all, you just have to get comfortable with the fact that people have a right to their own point of view. Second is understanding that there is a story behind the skepticism. And until and unless I understand that story, I will not be able to turn things around. So Aparna turned to her team for answers, something she neglected to factor into her initial plan. 
She listened and learned. Pay extra attention to what they are saying and ask a lot of questions. I hear where you're coming from. Any ideas on how we could do this differently? They will rightly slow you down and you'll be grateful that they slowed you down. And it's a good thing they did because a very important piece was missing from Aparna's new marketing strategy. We'll find out what that was later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, we heard Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky talk with my colleague Bob Safian about how designing a business for delight instead of scale can actually fuel scale growth. Now, Brian talks about the hardest thing he's ever done and how a near-death business experience changed him and Airbnb for the better. So you take this ridiculous idea that people are going to sleep on each other's couches, right? (laughs) And you turn it into not just a business, but a company that's growing, that's thriving. It's all over the world. People know what Airbnb is. You're steaming towards an IPO, (laughs) right? And it just happens to be... March, April of 2020. Amazing timing. Right, perfect, perfect timing. And you were gracious enough to get on and talk with me at that time. And we, we have a clip of that also that we can play here. We were preparing to go public. We had a plan and I felt great about the plan. And all of a sudden, it felt like I was a captain of the ship and a torpedo hit the side of the ship. The world changed irreversibly. It just felt like everything was breaking at once. And so we had this really, really difficult choice. Never thought I would have to make a choice like this before. My principles were do more than people expect. Be remembered for how we conduct ourselves. Be nimble. Pivot to where we think the world is going. It feels like you're in a house and it's on fire. And you've got to put out the fire while you're having to rebuild the house. So like we talk a lot here about having to pivot, but like this was a situation where the pivot, you don't even know where you're supposed to pivot to when you're in the middle of uncertainty. Was there something that you reached to to steady yourself, to steady your team? How do you stay nimble in the face of a crisis that's like that? I mean, you've emerged stronger out of it. Yeah, I thought... I'm bringing you back to the pain. Yeah, no, no, no. I can see I'm bringing you back to the pain. I'm trying to... um... (laughs) I thought the hardest thing I would ever do in my life was start Airbnb. And I was certain of that. And I came back from the holidays. It was January 2020. And I think like most of you, I thought my life was going down a certain road and I could predict it. And we were about to go public. We had mostly finished our S1 about a business that I was feeling pretty confident about And we were kind of a success story at that point. We were a $30 billion company waiting to go public. And if you told me 14 years earlier, when I was 25, unemployed, my parents are social workers, that would happen, I would have told you you were crazy. I thought we'd made it. And then all of a sudden, within eight weeks, we lost 80% of our business. And when you're like our size and you lose 80% of your business in eight weeks, it's like an 18-wheeler going 80 miles an hour and then having to slam on the brakes. Nothing good happens. And it was a really, actually, terrifying time in some ways. I mean, there were, like, major journalists saying, is this the end of Airbnb? Will Airbnb exist in the future? This is eight weeks after 
the preparation for what was supposed to be a huge IPO. So I'll bring you back to what was happening for me. It's actually pretty intense. You can learn a lot about people in a crisis. And I think the person you learn the most about in a crisis is yourself. And things get really clear to you in a crisis. I've never, thankfully, had a near-death experience. Although what it's been described is your life flashes before your eyes. And then suddenly everything becomes really clear to you. And I felt like we had a near-death business experience. And then suddenly everything became more clear to me. And not everything mattered. It was like our company was a burning house. If I could go in the house and only take half the things, which things do I want to take with me? You suddenly have to do that. And the other thing I've learned about a crisis, a lot of people now ask me, what's the hardest thing to manage in a crisis? You know what the hardest thing to manage in a crisis is? And this surprised me. It's your own psychology. The hardest thing to manage in your crisis is your own psychology if you're a leader. Because the psychology of the leader, I found, becomes the psychology of the organization. And if you think you're screwed, people see in your face and they say, well, you have the most information, so we must be screwed. But if you are optimistic, and not optimism that's blind optimism, because then you'll lose faith, but optimism rooted in, in like some basis of facts that people still want us to exist. We're not going to be as big as we used to be, but this is why we're going to exist then that becomes the optimistic mentality that permeates the organization. And you need to be optimistic to have creativity. And you sure as hell need creativity in a crisis because often there seems like no good solutions. And then the next thing you need to do in a crisis, I found, is communicate about four times as frequently as a non-crisis. I talked to every executive every day, every board member every week. I did all-hands meetings every single week. And I would totally be open in Q&As. And that was counterintuitive because in a crisis, you kind of don't want to have to face every employee because they're going to ask, are we going to do layoffs? And you really don't want to have to answer that question. But I would try to just go through that process. And the final thing, get a crisis, you have to be decisive and fast. But the problem with decisiveness is that a lot of people, especially a lot of data-oriented people, they get a little bit paralyzed because in a crisis, everything's changing. And how can you make a decision? We don't have the core data. And that's when you need courage. But courage needs to lean on something. What do you lean on with courage? And so courage must lean on principles. In other words, in a crisis, I don't think you make business decisions as much as you make principle decisions. And principle decisions become things like, if I can't predict the outcome, how do I want to be remembered? And if you always just imagine a crisis, this is my defining moment. This is how I want to be remembered. It sometimes helps you separate from the craziness and the chaos of that moment. And then suddenly, you can point a way forward, and you can become better than you ever were. So to end the story, people then thought we were going out of business. A thousand of us went in a foxhole, rebuilt the company from the ground up, miraculously eventually went public at a valuation five times our nadir, and now a design-led company did more than $3 billion in free cash flow, in the last 12 months by not even really trying to make money. There's a number of lessons here, but I think the most important lesson that I learned is the thing you learn most about in a crisis is yourself, and you've got to be true to who you are. Don't apologize for how you want to run the company, because when you are in your darkest moments, the principles in who you are is what you have to lean on.
Well, Brian, this has been great, and we're just about out of time, but there is one last question I want to ask yeah. you, and that is, how are you different as a leader today? Maybe if it's not crisis times the same oh, way, yeah. from having gone through this, like what's different about the way you think about it? I think of a funny analogy. Any of you ever have like a friend that like was super immature, never grew up, and they were like stunted, and all of a sudden they had like children, and then they grew up, and they became more responsible. I think that one of the things that makes you grow up is responsibility. And it wasn't that I didn't have a lot of responsibility for the crisis, but I didn't feel it as much. But when you're in a crisis and people think you're going to lose everything, you hear from everyone. Employees are worried about losing their jobs. Shareholders are worried about losing their investment. Hosts were worried about losing their income. Guests were worried about getting refunds. And communities are wondering, can you help them? Suddenly, in that moment, you just feel your responsibility from everyone at once. And that's a real growing up experience. Every decision you've ever made kind of comes and gets compressed. And it's, you reckon with all of it all at once. And I was trying to become something. I was trying to become a great CEO by studying other great CEOs. And I studied Jeff Bezos, and he does these six-page papers. So I did six-page papers, and he divisionalized the company. So I divisionalized the company. And one day I woke up before the pandemic, and I didn't even recognize the company I'd started. And then suddenly, in the crisis, there was no one to turn to. I mean, there was, I had a lot of support, but everyone asked me, what are you going to do? And in that moment, I think the number one thing I did was I stopped being shy, and I stopped apologizing for how I wanted to run the company. I didn't have a lot of role models. There weren't a lot of creative people that were like me. But I saw that no longer as a weakness, but as a strength. What we need in this world is more diversity. And I think diversity is not just getting every different type of person in the boardroom or in the executive team to conform. That's like diversity gone wrong. Good diversity is people, people being themselves. Because that's the whole point, is people come from different backgrounds, and they don't homogenize. They actually come together, and they put out new ideas. And I think that was probably the biggest thing I learned, which was just to be myself. It's going to be okay. All right. Great. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. I never get tired of hearing Brian speak. What I take away from his commentary here is the courage that it takes to make difficult decisions. When you have a clear philosophy about how to run your business, tough decisions become, if not simple, then simpler. For all of us to manage a crisis, we need to anchor on core principles and make our decisions through that lens. That enables greater creativity and better opportunity in tough times and in blue sky moments. You can hear more of Brian Chesky's story on our show feed. He was the subject of the very first episode of Masters of Scale and has returned two times on Masters of Scale Rapid Response. There are rich lessons throughout. I'm Reed Hoffman. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. What was very clear was that the customer was missing. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She had learned that she couldn't refocus her department's strategy without bringing her team along. And that meant listening when they told her what was missing, the customer. Aparna realized that putting the customer front and center would actually unify her team. I had folks who are traditional marketers and customer is the top thing on their mind. And then I have analysts who spend their time on data. 
And it's very easy to get stuck into that domain. I have a real opportunity to get both sides to see each other's perspective and meet in the middle. Because the partners team couldn't pivot without bringing the customers along. We call ourselves Team Magnet. Our job is to attract and retain customers. So it just creates a sense of working together. Aparna's revised vision statement calls Team Magnet a customer-centric, data-powered machine. The vision statement that I have right now is a hundred times better version of what I had at the beginning of the year. And it has evolved and improved as a result of these conversations we've continued to have within the walls of our team. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. Our chief content officer and interim president is Lori Hoffman. Our producers are Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Ray, Alex Morris, Tucker Lagierski, Chris Gautier, and Masha Makutonina. Our editor-at-large is Bob Safian. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Nate Kinsella and Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Stephen Wells, and Andrew Nolt. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh and Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, Aria Finger, Saida Sapieva, Greg Beato, Jodine Dorsey, Emily McManus, Adam Heiner, Alfonso Bravo, Colin Howarth, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Sammy Oputa, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tarter, Luisa Valles, Justin Winslow, Nikki Williams, Janeme Ezequena, Mariel Karecker, and Katie Blazing. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at masterscale.com slash membership. 